together we're we are gutsy, gutsy voices, voices. Um, I believe that there are so many fascinating stories and there are so many women out there everyday women who have stories that will resonate with so many other women and I think it's really important that these stories are shared and I am very passionate that everybody has a story to tell and too often we we downplay our own stories um, because we think that they're not worthy when in fact everyone's story is worth telling and it's just a matter of being gutsy enough to share it absolutely and with that in mind we're going to have different guests on a weekly basis and our first guest today is an amazing woman called jude and we're going to hear jude's story so we found jude because she um she's a pretty multi-talented woman actually and so today you're going to hear a little bit about her different talents as well as how she designed her life and using her gut. So we hope you enjoy her story and stick around for some fun stuff at the end. Hi Jude. Hello. Welcome to Gutsy Voices. Um, We really appreciate you being part of our podcast and we're looking forward to talking to you today about your story. So shall we jump right in? Let's. All right. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about your first career. You started off um, in business and yes. doing some pretty cool stuff in business. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what your life was like after you finished university? Uh, yeah, so I, um, well, I had a fairly standard career, I think. Well, I, actually, the minute I left university, I was at university in France, and I went to Germany because the Berlin Wall had just come down, and so I wanted to live in Berlin. And didn't speak any German. <laughs> so that uh, was the first one of my father's, uh, what on earth are you doing now? <laughs> now? You've just spent two years learning French and now you're in Germany. Uh, so I went there and just uh, messed around really. And then by the time I came back from there, again, this might be a running theme, my father had already applied for a job for me. Because yes. he was determined that I should get a proper job. Um, and I would say to anybody now, don't get a proper job until you're in your late 20s because what's the point? Yeah. Um, Anyway, so I came back and I uh, started working for a company just in a marketing role. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and then, yes, and I applied for a fast track, you know, management program for GE and went and did that. And that was lovely because I moved around with that. So you spent six months in different places um, doing different jobs. And then this sounds very linear, what I'm saying to you now. And then... Um, then I moved to Shell and I was then uh, I worked on their loyalty program and I was monthly manager for them and I st- it was during that sort of job that I could sort of see how my life was going to pan out you know I was doing quite well and uh, I was being promoted quite a lot and I you know pretty much enjoyed the work and I loved the people but I was 26, 27, and thinking, okay, so I can see what the next 40 years is like, and I'm not that interested in watching the programme play out. You know, you I, don't want to play this, I don't want to play this story out. I was going to say, you were doing everything by the book, and everything was a- going as it should do, right? I was doing everything you're meant to do, yes. and, and I felt Money like, was rolling in, buying houses, I was houses, doing fine, right, I bought a house, that, yes. I, you know, I bought my first <laughs> flat, and... Um, you know, I was having a you know a nice life, had a nice social life, all of that, uh, but realised that I could see how this story was going to play out, and I was bored by the thought of it, which sounds awful, no. especially because I sometimes look back and think, firstly, you have no idea how that story is going to play out, you don't know what life's going to throw at you, and secondly, I see people who have had quite traditional lives, and I am in part envious of them because mm. they have all the things that come with it and when you kind of go yeah I'm not going to do that yeah there's a, there's consequences to that mm-hmm. um but I really wasn't happy and that was the more important thing it was it wasn't a particularly uh, logical choice I wasn't happy and I knew that wasn't really sustainable and I certainly wasn't prepared to spend the next 40 years playing out a story that didn't make me happy um, so I kind of chucked everything up in the air. Okay, so what happens? You decide you're not happy. And... Yeah, well, it was a, it was a, 
it was a process. I didn't sort of just decide overnight to completely throw things up in the air. I think I tried a couple of things to see if I could address the problem. I mean, I knew that I loved performing. I had done as a as a child. You know, I you know I forced my school to let me do. Uh, drama GCSE that they didn't offer <laughs> I made them do that and I and I started a, a drama club at the school where I produced and directed shows for the lower down the kids lower down in the school because I was really so it was obvious that I, that was very much my thing I was very into that and and I think that was what I was missing a lot so I started off by joining a an amateur dramatics company amateur operatic company in fact and I did, so I did a couple of shows with them, two or three shows with them, and I really enjoyed that, and I got nice lead parts and stuff like that, and I was really enjoying it, but I could, there's a really big difference between being a professional performer and being an amateur performer, and I knew that, and I could see that, and and I didn't want to just be on the stage, I wanted to be good, mm-hmm. Um and so then I started doing a, a part-time course in the evenings at the City Lit, amazing place. Um, so I was uh, training in the evenings to do better and I really could see how, you know, I was more interested in getting good at doing it um, than just being on a stage through Andram. And, and so it's during that process that I thought, I actually think I need to take this seriously because I am never happier than when I am there doing that. Um, and... Yeah, and I could also see by doing it that I was also good at it. So, you know, and that's also fun. Who doesn't love doing what they're good at? Um, so I started applying for drama schools. Uh, and I, but I, I was pretty practical about it. I, I decided that I was only going to go to the, the, there are loads of drama schools, but there are only a small number that are accredited, that give you, okay. a, a, you know, an accredited qualification for what that means. I mean, obviously you don't need any qualification at all to be an actor, but I thought I'm going to go through a process where, I have to go to a drama school. I'm not just going to stop and become an actor because I don't know what that means. What do you do? You wake up one morning and lie in the shades long. I don't know. I don't know what you <laughs> um, I'm going to do an acting course and it has to be at an accredited school. And if I can't get a place on a course like that, if I can't get over that hurdle or through that, you know, through that process, then, I, then I'm going to de- determine for myself that that means it's not to be. Okay. Um, and... So, yeah, so I applied to drama school on the basis that if I got rejected by everybody, I would go, okay, there's loads of people that want to do this, there's loads of people that aren't good enough, that would be my criteria. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I, I did get into drama school, so I gave up my job. And, I, and by this point, obviously, I'm in my late 20s, there's no funding for any of that. I've had a degree that's been paid for by the state in the days when those <laughs> things are paid for by the state. Um, so that had to be self-funded. Um, so that's a very good way of knowing whether you're really up for it because when you're paying the money yourself, you know, that yes. that's quite that gets the you know, sorts the wheat from the chaff. <laughs> um so I went to drama school and for a year did a, a postgraduate course at, at drama school. Um and yes, and came out of that the other side thinking, right, ready to go. Where's my where's my turban and my chaise long? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a cigarette holder. I'm ready to be right. uh, Norman Desmond. So yes. So uh, I would say so that's that's kind of the first big. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with my life, and or second because well, you went to Germany. And uh, then, the, uh, the, uh, the Germany thing was more sort of gap year esque. I would say okay. where I just sort of thought, who wants to? There are interesting places to go in the world, and Berlin was the most interesting place. I mean, I was I graduated not long after the Berlin Wall came down. So why would you not? Why would you not go yeah. there? You know, the, you know, and I think that's quite a good way of phrasing it. Like, why would oh, you okay. not do that? You know, not rather than why would you do that, but why yeah. would you not? Um, so that was a, you know, a slightly ridiculous thing to do because I really did not speak German, gotcha. and I had assumed that every, because everybody in Germany speaks excellent English, you assume that you know you'll be fine. But actually, in Berlin, because it's it was in the centre of what had been the Eastern Eastern yeah. Bloc or the you know East Germany. Everybody's second language was Russian, so they did not speak English. I really had to oh, learn. Gosh. I really had to learn German very, very quickly. <laughs> Which is <laughs> not, not the yeah, easiest language I was to say, learn. That's, that's not it's easy not, at all. It's not a good one to teach yourself. No. All right, so let's go back. So you're you're now you've gone to drama school. Yeah. 
You've done that. You've left the proper job. Yes. You're now you're now an actor. Yes. <laughs> so what what did life look like as an actor? Like, did you find that happiness? Were you were you? Oh it? no, no, at no point, <laughs> at no point. Really? Uh, because the. I mean, I'm going to say I'm going to imagine Olivia Colman's happy with how things have turned out, <laughs> but for most actors, it's a constant process of. Making yourself vulnerable and being rejected. Mm. I mean, that really? is broadly speaking what mm. the life is like. And of course, there are successes where you get the job and mm. that feels wonderful. And then you're immediately stressed because you have to do the job and will you be good enough? And, but it's a constant process of being evaluated mm. and critiqued. And you know, there aren't many jobs where a complete stranger gets to come and write a report on you and put it in the newspaper. True. There just Very aren't true. many jobs like yeah. that where. Well, it's so yeah. incredibly subjective that you you end up having these experts in in your field who get to critique you because otherwise, how can people decide what to do? So, it's a it's a very it's it's a hard career to go. I am happy with this because yes. oh, I don't know how you define happiness, but it's not a permanent state. And no, it's, it's not. Certainly, yeah, yes. takes you. This, this requires a lot, but what I would say is it has been pleasingly challenging, mm. and I am somebody who responds quite well to that. Okay. So I like being out of my comfort zone and achieving where I hadn't thought I might. So uh, it's one of those things where you might not enjoy it, but you like having done it. It's gotcha. one of those, you know, it's, it's a bit like going to a boot camp. You don't enjoy it at the time, but you love having done it. That's pretty much my view on my entire life, which is, okay. it might not be fun at the time, but I'll be pleased I've done it afterwards. Well, I was going to say, so tell us, because I know you worked with a partner and you were doing, you were doing gigs. Oh, yeah. As an actor. So, I, so tell us a little bit about. So I auditioned for a show, an Edinburgh show, which was a comedy show. And it had been written by two women. And I was playing the third part. It was like a. Country and Western comedy. <laughs> Ridiculous show. Anyway, it was lovely. And we did that. And then I got on very well with one of the women there. And the next year, we um, we took a show up together. And we became a double act. So we wrote a number of shows. We went up to Edinburgh year after year. And then after we'd done the Edinburgh show, we would then tour that show. Um, uh, because you've got to make some money back somehow. Because Edinburgh does not pay. Um, it's a very expensive uh exhibition centre really it's not a you know you don't come out you don't make a lot of money doing Edinburgh you tend to pay to do it Mm. and it's very hard to make money out of Edinburgh actually don't you have a really good story about the first time you did that with her where you you guys basically sat down and it was supposed to be three of you well there was so the three of us in the first year had worked together and then the next year we were going to take a show up the three of us this time the three of us writing it and you sort of have to make all the decisions around about January, February for Edinburgh because that's when you book your venue and you have to you have to write the blurb about your show. You haven't written your show. You probably don't even have a title for your show yet, but you have to write 40 words on why people should come to your show to go into the brochure. You know, all gotcha. the lead times are out Crazy. of whack. Yes. And we were just at that point of making that decision and, and, and one of the three of us said, actually, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm up for going up this year for various reasons. Leaving the other two of us going, well, are we going to go as a two? Because we'd had a show as a three the year before. Are we going uh-huh. to do that? Now, I had never written anything before. Um, and my, the other woman, Alice, had written a number of things and taken a number of shows up. So she was way more experienced than I was. And we had to make that decision about whether the two of us were going to do this together. Now, from, from my point of view, I had kind of nothing to lose. I mean, money. Right. Money. It's an enormous privilege to be able to say I can, you know, make back the money if we lose a lot of money. But um, she had a reputation and she, you know, all of that. Uh, and But she's a very, very, um, hell, let's just try it kind of a person. She said, yeah, I'm, if you're in, I'm in. So that was great from my point of view. I learned a lot from her. Um, you know, working with somebody who's actually already written. I mean, it's a... It, it's. The, the foundation of the relationship is quite complex then because one person is the expert and one person is the rookie. And at some point yeah. you have to let that go. After you've written a couple of shows, you have to say, you know, maybe we might be, we might, we might kind of both know what we're doing now. But, you know, yeah. and certainly at that point, that was, I thought she took, an ama- she took a, a punt on me, which was yeah. great. Yeah. So, and then, and then I was going to say, and then from there you guys went on to do... 
to we do did a, loads yeah. more. Yeah. yeah, so we established ourselves as a double act. We did quite a lot of gigging. We ran a night in, in London um, once a week. No, not once a week. Oh, that would have been hell. Um, <laughs> once a month, that was hell enough. Uh, so we had a monthly residency and we toured and we wrote shows every year. And yeah, it was a lovely, lovely period of time actually where you're working with somebody that you, you get on with and that you click with and you're writing stuff that you're you really like and that you're proud of. Yeah, it was a nice phase. Uh, how long was that phase, Jude? Years and years. Uh, I'm going to say it must have been about six years. Right. Six okay. or, you know. So your first cycle was sort of was about the same, the first job, about six, seven years? Oh, God, are we going to discover now that it's about time that I packed up? <laughs> I was just interested to see you. worried because my son is six. <laughs> I'm done with this now. This has been a lovely phase. <laughs> time parenting but I'm afraid six years is my limit and I'm moving on um, oh gosh uh, yeah well I suppose so actually six years doing that and then well I wouldn't say was, I mean definitely the the having a proper job and becoming an actor was a six year period the next phase is more I think it's a slightly that doesn't come to an end. I don't really know why. Why does one thing end? Well, I was going to say, it's more that you just come to a natural conclusion mm-hmm. and say, "We have done this to this extent, and it, it that is meant to get you to another point where Absolutely. you have." Because you yeah. haven't left acting. No, because we're going to get no. to that. No, I no, mean, no, you're still haven't. you're still performing yes, and still absolutely. doing things. But um, was it was it at the end of this phase with your partner that we come to your next plot twist where you? Or, or, well, here, let me ask you this. So you come to the end um, of your gigging in that natural phase with, your, with, um, with this woman. And then what, what do you do next? Were you, were you finding other areas of performance? Or... So I moved into stand-up for a very brief period. And really, I only did that because I was writing stuff. And I realised it was stand-up and I was horrified because it meant I had to go do stand-up. But in a way, kind of like, oh, this is stand-up. I suppose I should do some stand-up. <laughs> so I had never, never really been a particular ambition of mine. And, and as a consequence, I absolutely didn't have uh, the... Uh, I mean, being a stand-up is hard work when you start out. You are travelling all around the country. Um, you know, there's absolutely no stability. It's, it's a very, very tough job to build your way up. I mean, I, the people I was first gigging with now are now just starting to break through... But they've done 10 years of driving around the country every weekend yeah, to gotcha. do different gigs or whatever. And I, that was never my goal at all. I never really saw myself in that, in that mould at all. It was more that I just wanted to try out some ideas and see where that, where that took me. Um, and we moved more from writing for ourselves to perform into writing things to pitch, you know, radio shows, oh, okay. and TV stuff and things like that, and, and, and continue to, actually. In fact, we were having a conversation about three weeks ago about a couple of our scripts that have never really done anything, about, you know, maybe we should rethink the, you know, the format oh. for that, because actually podcast does, a, does open up a whole new possibility where there used to be very high barriers in place um, to get anything made at all, actually. Now you can kind of let your work speak for itself. If people mm-hmm. like it, then... Mm-hmm. The, then it, it then it can it can grow organically. So we're kind of we might come back to we might come back to that drawer of scripts. So then I'm curious then how because basically your life takes another twist. You're performing. I know we've talked about in the past how you you're going out and your friends are all doing their thing yeah. and you know life is is on the path that you've designed at that point. And then something hits you and you say, wait a minute, I actually need to do this. I need to be a mum. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how becoming a mum came about for you. Well, I uh, turned 40, which for most people would be the moment when they think, oh, maybe I've left it too late to be a mum. Yeah. Most people are thinking about this at 30, yeah. or like crazily, 25. Yeah. Um, not me at yes. all. I was... Um, Busy doing other things, having a lovely time, and uh, I think I just sort of thought, well, if it's going to be, it will be, it will work out. I'm quite fatalistic like that. I sort of think as long as I'm putting out the stuff that I want in life, what I want will come back to me. Um, And I think I am an example of the fact that is not true. (laughs) You do have to actually make some some choices and go like, "Mm." Uh, but I wasn't really. 
Yeah, I really wasn't active about thinking I really must settle down with somebody. And I think that might have been because I had a couple of relationships in my 20s where they could really have ended in marriage and I actively went, oh, no, I'm not ready for that at all. I've got way more stuff that I want to do before I get married and have children. And, and maybe somewhere in the back of my head I, I felt that that would always be the end of me being able to do exactly what I wanted. And to be fair, <laughs> with some reason, it is often very limiting, especially for women, yeah. um, to do exactly what it is that you want if you have a small child in tow. Um, and so I know that in my 20s I had sort of backed out of those sorts of relationships, really, um, which I'm glad about. They wouldn't have been the right relationships. But um, I, so I, when I started pursuing the more acting and comedy and performing thing, that wasn't really a high priority to me. Anyway, I, I sort of found myself turning 40 and realised that I really did actually want to have a family and that I'd slightly screwed that up because I hadn't met the love of my life and got married and done the things that you do if you want to have a family. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose what most women do at that stage is they feel sad about that, and I did. And I don't think I sort of felt like it was absolutely never going to happen, but it was kind of on the... We're getting into the realms of, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to happen. And then I don't know where the thought came from. I knew somebody who had adopted on her own, uh, and but not particularly well. And I certainly didn't know about it before she had adopted her. We weren't, we were not super close friends, um, but I knew she had done it. So I had in my head that that was a possibility. And then one day... Oh, you know when you just have these ideas and somehow they come from nowhere and they're the most obvious thing in the world. I just thought, why don't I, ad- why don't I adopt? Mm. I, could ad- I could adopt a baby. I mean, yeah. that would make perfect sense. And the more I thought about it, the more I interrogated the idea, the more convinced I became that that was a good plan because I couldn't find any reason not to. And I remember telling one of my best friends, in fact, the one that I'd spent the you know, best part of my 30s, you know, performing on stage with. And she, her reaction, I sort of broached it. I can remember exactly where we were sitting, exactly what, what bar yeah. we were at. And <laughs> I could probably tell you what make of uh, red wine we were drinking. Yeah. And and I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you something now. I've had, a, I've had a thought, I've had an idea. I don't know how you're going to react. And I told her, and she, she sort of looked at me. And her response was basically, oh, yeah. I can really see that. Mm. And you know, it was just a really... She was blindsided, obviously. You're not expecting somebody to say, I think I might have talked to baby on my own. It's quite a big thing to say. But she kind of sort of took it in and went, oh, I can really see that. And it was a sort of affirmation, really, that it wasn't the most ridiculous thing in the world. And it... And that uh, affirmation coming from that person that you, you really trusted. And and then she said, can you do that? Can you adopt on your own? And I'm like, I've got no idea. <laughs> I mean, I literally don't know if it's possible. It's a bit like me saying, I've decided that I'm going to start walking on air. Mm. I can really see that. I mean, can you do that? I don't know. But how hard, you know, I'm going to work, I'm going to find out. Actually, I think it's a little bit like I have my whole life going and I think I'm going to become an actor. And mm-hmm. I will make that happen. Mm-hmm. And you did. And then... Yeah. Right, yeah. But they're, but they were, they're similar things in so much as they didn't... They weren't... Neither of those ideas were, oh, I think this might be quite nice. I might have a go at this. This would be a little bit of fun. Neither of those things were like that. They were both way more imperative. They were realisations that once I'd had them, I didn't feel there was another option. Mm. You know, people have said to me, was it hard to give up work, give up a good job to train as an actor? No, it wasn't hard at all. It was an absolute, I just had to do it. I was very, very careful about it. I made sure I put as much in place as I could to make sure it was worth doing. But I was pretty much had to do it once I'd had the thought. What if I actually did this full time? (gasps) It was one of those moments of like, oh my goodness, it would be... I, I wish I did this full time. At yeah. which point you can't not. Yeah. And it was a similar thing with the adoption. Once I'd had the idea, it was like I absolutely cannot pursue. I cannot do anything but pursue this as far as I can take it. And they might say no, mm. and there's nothing I can do about that. But the one thing I can do is pursue this as mm. far as I can take it. Mm. And 
I love that. I, I, I love that idea of this is just what I have to do because mm-hmm. that's you absolutely following your gut mm-hmm. and, and doing that sort of thing. And in relation to that, the adoption, I love the story of when you realized your son was the one. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'll, go th- I'll, I'll do a bit of preamble in terms of the yeah. process that you go through when you're adopting, which, mm. um, or, or rather the process I went through, because it's very different for different local authorities, and it's very different now to how it was then. Um, but certainly the process I went through, I was assessed for six months, which is like two every two weeks my social worker came to my house for three hours and interviewed me and I had to do homework about um, my family and my personal life and my love life and my financial life I mean I literally had to show her my bank statements you know they know everything they they paid for me to have a medical I mean they knew everything about me I knew more about me at the end than they (laughs) and and then they write this report on you which is 60 pages long this report and my social worker sent it to me saying oh can you just fact check it for me and I read this report like goggle eye thinking like oh I hadn't realised she'd got that from that but actually that's probably true you know (laughs) there's really quite a lot of things in there where somebody's you know made a professional assessment of your Mm -hmm. ability to cope with life full stop really um so you go through that process and then at the end of that you go to a panel which is you know 10 people sitting around a table interviewing you And, and and to be honest that panel is more about do we believe that the social worker has done a good job in assessing you? So we're going to mm-hmm. check whether this report we have on you exactly. is representative of you when you sit in front of us. But and, and I was approved at that panel, and that means you are now a potential adopter. So you've gone through that process, you've ticked the boxes, and that's and you think that's the hard bit. You think that's yeah. hard, having somebody nose around in your life, every single bit of your life. I know a lot of people find that really hard. I quite it because I quite like talking about myself yeah. and, and here we are today right exactly uh, <laughs> you know right. would you like to come on a podcast and talk about yourself for half an hour sure <laughs> uh, um, but after that the process is to find the, the child and again processes differ wildly I had a fantastic um, social worker who was sending me through similar folders you know 60 page reports on children that are, uh, are um, available to available to adopt. I mean, it's it's a marketplace which is um, terrifying. But how else do you do it? Um, and she was giving me these reports that it varied. Sometimes you've got like um, we don't have a report on this child yet. Here's one page on them. Sometimes you've got the full report through. And I was reading these reports. And I was you know sitting. I'd moved by this point into a flat that was suitable for a for a baby to live in. Um, you know, I'd, I'd yeah. rented out my own flat and uh, moved to a two-bed flat. And I'm being sent through these reports and I'm just reading them and reading them and thinking, I can't, I can't do this. What was I thinking? I have, you know, I've had all this money poured into this process. You know, it costs a lot of money to get a social worker to assess you for six months. And yeah. all of this stuff has been done so that I can adopt. And then I'm reading these files and the children are complicated and they've had massively traumatic experiences and I'm just thinking I cannot possibly do this on my own and I'm so angry with myself I'm going to cry I'm I'm so angry with myself because you know all the way through this I've had people saying are you sure you're up for this are you sure you're up for this and I'm like of course I am this is what I want don't you know this is you know don't don't rain on my parade you know and suddenly the reality hits and I'm looking at these children and thinking, I honestly don't think I can be what they need me to be. And oh. it's incredibly difficult. And yeah, and I'm reading through all these files and thinking at some point, just sheer pressure is going to make me say, OK, I'll, I'll adopt this one because I just feel so bad that I'm not able to do it do you know what I mean yeah and I was really wondering what I was going to do and was I just going to have to admit that I wasn't going to be able to do this and then I don't know I I, I got sent through something that wasn't a complete report it was just one page and on that page was a picture of a baby 
like in a hat and the baby is like six months old and all babies as we know yes. look the same at six months old with their yeah. little hats on and yeah. uh, and the there was a tiny bit of information about this baby which was basically he likes bouncing in his bouncer and playing with his red fire engine which is true of Every baby, yeah, right? yes. but something about uh, so there was a picture and just a paragraph on it, and I looked at that picture and I just knew, and I can't even explain to you how that works, but I looked at that picture and I just knew, and I knew nothing about him. I didn't know how complicated he was, anything about his background. I didn't have the full report, but I just knew. And then when the report came through. Instead of reading it, well, up until that point, I'd been reading these reports thinking, I can't take that on, I can't take that on. And in this instance, I read the report and thought, well, we'll deal with that, well, we'll deal with that. And it was just a completely different shift. And I cannot explain it at all, except because it was based on almost nothing. A picture of a baby that looked like a baby and a paragraph about a baby that described a baby. Mm -hmm. I cannot explain it, but I just knew. And it's one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced. And and I think that leads to relationship with your son, which I think is also such a lovely part of your story. Because so much of your life you have done based on, I've chosen this, I need to do this, this is my idea, I need to do this and I'm going to do it. And then you become a mum and you choose your child not because you know, of any logical reasoning, but because of that gut feeling, I need, this is, this is the child. And now you have this, like, I love listening to you talk about being a mom to your son because it's so authentic. So I was wondering if you could do that a little bit for our listeners, because I think, I I think it reminds me a lot of all of the great bits of why we are moms in the face of all the difficulties of being a mom. And then you do that on top of everything else that you do. So, will you tell us a little bit about your relationship? And what you relationship is different than anybody else's. I just know that for me it has been... Actually, I don't know that your relationship with your son is necessarily different. It's the way you talk about it <laughs> that I think captures it. So, like, what is it that you love about being a mum? And what is it that you love about being a mum specifically to your son? Um... I mean, I think a lot of people would say that motherhood is transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you find something in yourself that you didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always been a relatively resilient person. You know, the, the having these gut reaction decisions to do things and that, that's all well and good, but sticking with it, yeah. uh, you know, keeping going when it isn't as much fun as it first seemed is that is the hardest bit so I think I thought I was resilient in the first instance but it has required (laughs) parenting has required quite a lot of resilience and obviously I'm on my own and um and I I I don't know why I hadn't really appreciated this but I'm my my single parenting model is obviously quite different to most other single parents because I don't have every other weekend where my son is with his dad and I have the weekend off or I have every Tuesday night off because he's with his dad you know there's none of that now that's not true for all single parents but it's true for a a great many that there is some flexibility in your week there is a there is a co-parent which is can be frustrating in these negotiation and all of that which I don't have but I am 100% my son's only parent you know it's every weekend from the minute he wakes up and it's Every, you know, I pick him up from school every day and I drop him at school every day and I'm with mm-hmm. him all the time at the weekend unless he's at a play date or a party. It's me. It's yeah. on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that has been quite an... Uh, you know, that's a, a, <laughs> a challenge because there is no... There isn't much respite from it at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that's not what you're angling at. You're totally... <laughs> no, right? Um, um, no, but I but, think that's an important part of it. But... Because I think understanding that aspect and then talking about... I mean, I just, uh, you know, I, I mean, what can I say? I absolutely love being a mum. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're going through this phase at the moment, which has been going on, I think, for a solid year, where he comes in every morning and about 15 soft toys land on my head. And I was thinking, oh, when will this end? 
And then the next minute, my thought was, oh, when will this this end? end? Uh, Which is, you know, a reminder to enjoy every minute, even if it is being woken up by a toothless dragon landing on your head. Um, But I, yeah, I have found the experience of being his mum to be, I mean, it's absolutely the the most incredible relationship of my life. And, you know, I already had these conversations with him where I said, do I tell you I love you too much? Uh, Pretty much we've agreed that I do. Uh, (laughs) I do do that. Uh, um, As he pushes my face out of his face because he's trying to watch TV. Um, But, you know, it's been a, you know, it's a, it's a lovely thing. Well, and then, I guess from there... You, you've kind of covered all these things. I mean, you've come from, you know, learning, going to university to learn French, but then going to Germany. Yeah. And then coming back and having a proper job just to make sure dad is comfortable and, you know, dad is happy and you're doing all the things. <laughs> he has not been happy for the last few years. I'm going to say, once he, yeah, we didn't even get back to your dad. But then you, so then you've done that and you, you've ticked all those boxes, but actually you realized no, 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 being an actor is what I really want to do. And so you've done that and, and found your, I don't want to say happiness because that was not the word you used, but your, your pleasure and the challenge, yeah. right? And then, and then you've had this, again, switch that actually no motherhood is calling. Yeah. And you've, you've tackled that challenge and probably find the pleasure in that challenge yes. now, uh, right? Absolutely. And so um, one of the things when we were first doing our research and talking to you was you talked about your life by design. Yes. And so um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that because really all of these choices you've made, you don't actually describe them as choices you've made, but you, as, as, the, as opposed to the opposite, actually, that yeah. you couldn't choose not to. I could, yes, I couldn't not do that. And them. so can you talk a little bit about how you've designed your life and why, um, well, why you describe it that way? Yes, well, I think... So I think... <laughs> were the, uh, so, so I'm a wordsmith by trade. I love True. words. I love writing. Um, and I think uh, I've been thinking about this recently, about how, I mean, I suppose this is what we would call in political terms spin. But de- you can make yourself feel good or bad about your life and your choices, depending on the words that you use to describe them. Mm. So on the one hand, I could describe my life as a sort of chaotic jigsaw of pieces that came from different boxes, but have stuck them all together and made some kind of picture, and it's fine. Yeah. You know, or I could say, my life is a an, an eclectic, um, rich mix of different um, of different things that have happened because I haven't just picked one thing and followed it right the way through. So when I say uh, earlier, you know, there are people who. Um, decided to have a career at 25 and have stuck with it all the way through there are some lovely things that I am very jealous of I'm sorry jealous of in their lives I didn't do that I stopped doing that and went and did something else and then I moved from that into something else and then I moved from that into something else and what that means is I have quite a broad range of uh, skills and passions and you know it's a tapestry of life if you like but it's um but you could equally say it's a hodgepodge and you know it's yeah. it's the result of somebody not just choosing to do something at 22 and sticking with it mm. I choose to describe that as a lovely tapestry but mm. I could see that you could equally describe it as you know a jigsaw of pieces taken from all different jigsaws and it doesn't make a proper picture so it's just about the words that you choose to describe it. And some days I describe it as one and some days I describe <laughs> it as the other, depending on my mood. Um, but what I would say is um, I think that the life I have now, which is the life I have now is full of variety. So I now have, because what we haven't really talked about is that I started up my own business. Right. Um, as part and parcel. I just realised I didn't ask you yeah. about that. That's silly, but that's, yeah. Yeah, so I started up my own business as part of the way that I was cope, going to cope with being a single parent, especially because I was going to be a single parent with no um, secondary parent. So um, I realised that it was going to be just impossible to uh, be travelling away from home at all. So I wanted to be able to work from home, so I started up my own 
uh, writing business. Um, and so that's that, and that's almost brought together quite a lot of different bits of my life because it has the all the the marketing expertise and the degree in the postgraduate stuff and all of that that was in marketing. And then the other 10 years of writing creatively, storytelling and all of that suddenly comes full circle and I've suddenly got this business where I'm actually quite good at what I do because I have a whole strategic element of myself for that and, and I'm able to write. Yeah. So <laughs> weirdly that all comes together in one bit but I still have, but I'm still writing a, I'm writing a, a script at the moment, I still um, work as an actor, um, I run my own business and of course I have my son to raise and... Um, so I have quite a, uh, uh, God, I can't even think of the word to, to describe it. I have a wide variety of things going on in my life in any one day. I, I find um, I'm often changing gear um, okay. and clothes quite often. I'm <laughs> literally changing clothes right. on, you know, in train toilets because I'm in the wrong thing to go from one thing to the next. But you know, I'm doing a lot of different things at a time, which I have concluded is probably the thing I like most about my life. I like the variety. It's a, it is almost like taking on a various acting role, isn't it? The, I mean, it's like a one-woman show. Yeah, I am. Li- <laughs> I, I sometimes I'm almost physically miming the changing in gears of a car because I realise that the thing I have to do is change gears because I'm going from dropping the child off at school or go, you know going to a uh, a business pitch and then going to a acting casting oh. and then coming back you know there's a it requires you to be quite a diff in a different headspace yeah. as much as anything it's not that you have to look different it's just that you need to be mm. either in a creative mode mm. or you're in a locking it down you know there's lots yeah. of different modes required mm. but I think it's the variety of that that I like it's, and it was the the fear I had when I was in my 20s about I can see how this story plays out my fear was that there wouldn't be enough variety in that so i I really got what I asked for. <laughs> I really got what I asked for. So I think that's when I say I've got the life I designed. I think what I mean is I have to take responsibility for the fact that even though I might not have made what I would call choices, I kind of follow my gut, as you would say. Yeah. I I got the life I designed by doing that. By you know, I went with my gut on some things. I suppose you know there might have been things that I didn't follow. You know, yeah. gut instincts that I didn't follow maybe so if I didn't get those bits you who knows right but the things that I did do were yeah I followed my gut in those in those in that sense so I've I've got a life full of variety and I have to say that somewhere along the line I must have chosen that because I did it quite actively gotcha well and I think that's um oh where where was it Sorry, I'm just checking my notes again. I feel like you you talked about that, like a friend of yours, because actually this was one thing we talked about at the very beginning um, when we first started talking to you, was about a friend had asked, or you were talking to a friend who said something along the lines like, not many people have made the choices you have made. Oh, I see. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I, I, oh, I was at a party. (laughs) I was almost certainly two drinks in. And I think I was saying, oh, my life is... Uh, I can't remember what we were having some de- slightly deeper meaningful conversation he was saying something and I said I don't know what you're talking about my life is the same as everybody else's and his jaw was on the floor he's like I've literally never met anybody who would make the choices you made yes I, yes, ca- yes. I cannot imagine anybody else in my life making the choices that you've made yeah. and I was taken aback by it because because to me they're obvious choices now, that's true for everybody, isn't it? That yes. When you think that something is obvious, you imagine that it's obvious to everybody, but it's not. It's just obvious to you. And he was so like, nobody would do the things that you've done. You, nobody what? would. Um, and obviously that's, you know, plenty of people do kind of things. I don't think it's so unusual. But I was really struck by the fact that what I thought was very straightforward... I've just made the choices I've made because they were the obvious ones, were to him really quite out there choices. And I suppose that maybe comes back to the gut thing, which well, is that... for me it was just an obvious thing to do. Obviously you give up your job and retrain as an actor if you're not happy. <laughs> I mean, obviously <laughs> you do that. And obviously if you get to 40 and you haven't met the love of your life, you adopt a baby on your own. I mean, obviously you do, don't you? So I think I can see, I mean, I'm saying it like that because it makes it ridiculous. Those are big choices to make. They aren't choices that everybody would make. 
but they're just my version of following my gut, which mm. I think if you asked anybody, if you unpicked anybody, you'd find that they had followed their gut in some way or other, and that's just how it played out for me. Well, and I, that's what I wanted to get to, because I think, I think you sound like such a gutsy person to do all of these things, but to you, it wasn't really a gutsy choice. I mean, the only thing yes. I would say is I know, and I have almost made my peace with this, I know that I am... Have a tendency to push myself out of my comfort zone. You know, yeah. I kind of, that's where, it doesn't make right. sense, but that's where I feel comfortable. I yeah. feel very, um, I feel very um, claustrophobic when things get too easy. So, you. you know, if everything's ticking along nicely, I start getting very, very antsy very quickly. I start feeling like, well, you know, what's what's the point of any of this? I know how this works. Gotcha. You know, I know, you know, I know how to do all of these things. So why would I carry on doing them? You know, I need to find something else to do that will make me feel challenged. Um, and I, you know, I have a lot of close friends who find that very funny yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they think it's ludicrous and what's uh-huh. she doing now and why would you do that and all of this, like, why are you doing that now? Your life's hard enough as it is. Like, well, I'm not doing it because I want to make my life harder and wanting, I'm doing it because it makes me feel happier well, to and- be overcoming a challenge. And I thought that actually would be a really good way to wrap up our podcast with you today because I think one of the most lovely things you wrote is about how your life... Oh, let me read it here. Um, Because didn't she write it in here? Yes. About how you are... Oh, gosh. I should have marked it. But about how your life... You are now, you might be poor for the choices you've made, but not financially. Uh, Yes? Yes, I think, yes, but only financially. But only, oh, here it is, right here. Um, Living with the consequences of those changes has been tough at times. I'm much poorer, but only financially. Yes. And so I thought that would be a nice way to wrap up, is that really, because of all of these things, you feel your life is much richer. It's that tapestry. Oh, gosh, yes. yes. Yeah. So. And... And without a shadow of a doubt, I would be financially better off if I had stuck with a proper job. <laughs> in, in big and, business you know, at Shell yeah, and all of that, hey? Absolutely. Of course. I mean, you know, I mean, you know of course. But, um, but, and I have to say, I think it's an, I'm a, you know, I am a middle class um, white woman. I have benefited from enormous privilege in my life. It is a privilege to be able to choose not to do the thing that make, that earns you the most money. Yeah. I really don't think that should be overestimated. It is a privilege to be able to say, I'll take, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a cut in income to it in order to follow a dream or whatever. I mean, I'm not going to say it has not been challenging. It has been incredibly yeah. challenging. It's not, you know, I have no silver spoon in my mouth or anything like that. Mm. But there are plenty of people who don't get anything like those choices in life and I uh, you know it would be ludicrous to suggest that you know that was all possible because of my strength of character because in in large part it's because you know I had a an enormously supportive family who made sure I got an excellent education and all of those things that come with that it would be it would be ridiculous to suggest that's all about strength of character it's uh, it's enormously about you know the privilege of being able to go I would like to do something else and not the thing that earns me the most money yeah and and I think I think your self-awareness of that is amazing um because I actually maybe that's it that you are incredibly self-aware of all of these bits of your life and I don't know about you, Mary, but I'm kind of excited to see what your next plot twist is. <laughs> well, I think it's oh, very... Oh, God, I'm not. Right. <laughs> well, I think parenting in itself is... It, there's always a twist, isn't there? There's always the next plot twist, yeah. whether we choose it or not. And I right. think that's the thing about parenting, and you're so well-placed to, to take this lovely young man... Yeah, because, well, I think that, you, I, you know, it, it's, going to, it's always going to be you you're hugely aware of how privileged you are to have this choice to do it and yet you're giving you're giving your life to enable somebody else and that's just such a gift yeah it's lovely I mean I Bob Mortimer said something once in an interview he said oh when I was you know when I was younger I was uh, you know I was the picture in the frame 
He said, then I got married and I became the frame around the picture. And now I've got a family, I'm the hook on the wall that the frame is stuck on. And I thought, well, it's it's quite an interesting point about how, um, you know, you sort of go from being the centre of your own story to becoming um, um, the thing that makes somebody else's story possible. But I think about it quite a lot because I think it's really uh, easy for, certainly for women to become marginalised by all the other things going on in our lives, to take up less and less space, to allow other people to have more. And in some ways I'm quite lucky because I only have one child and I don't have a partner, so therefore there aren't that many people to take up my space. But my God, I still lose space, left, mm. right and centre. Mm. Yeah. And that, my challenge at the moment is to say, you know, who, you know, what is there for me to do? Because I'm, you know, there's enough space for everybody to have big stories. Mm. Yes. And yours is an amazing one, and we thank oh, you thank so you. much for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you for asking, as we've yeah. established. I'd love to talk about right. myself. So, well, thank you. And that, that made you a wonderful interview. So, well, we look forward to, to seeing more of your work and, and chatting with you maybe again in the future. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so much, Jude. Listeners can't see Jude, but the passion in her eyes when she talks about each of those chapters is so apparent. And it's just, for me, it's really inspiring that she's still aware that she is that person who likes the drive of a new challenge and she's been her authentic self and that's just wonderful to see. I absolutely agree. Um, I One thing I always love when I get to chat with Jude um, is, is her passion and her enthusiasm and I think that comes through and I do love, I love her outlook on life. Mm. I love, I love her, uh, um, the way she goes about things where it's not why should I do this? It's how can I not do this? Mm. Like here's this idea, and how can I not do this? Um, and that that inspires me because it makes me look at the things that I'm doing differently. Mm. Instead of always feeling like something's a burden, it's actually an opportunity. And I think that's lovely. But I think she's also really honest about the struggles that come from that. Definitely, which I think was good. Yeah. And I love the fact that she talked about the language that we use around any situation, the spin. Yes. How, how, what's the spin on this? And it is, it's, it's, so, it's so important that we don't always go around having a positive attitude about everything because there is, of course, toxic positivity, which is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. But that idea that actually you do have a choice as to how, you, how you're going to frame that situation. Absolutely. So one thing I love about our podcast is that you get inspired musically by our guests. So I want to hear how Jude inspired you today. What what songs are, are rattling around in that brain of yours? There's loads of songs. Um, but I think for me, the, the passion that she has around change and 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 embracing everything with with such a can do approach and to wait and see what happens Perhaps the song that sprung to mind today is David Bowie, Changes. Ooh, that's a good one. On that note, I think we'll leave you and our listeners until next week. Raise your voice, the time is here.